Welcome to Master the NEC, where we talk about the National Electrical Code and all things electrically related. My name is Paul Abernathy, your host, and welcome to today's podcast. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Master the NEC, where we talk about the National Electrical Code and all things electrically related. My name is Paul Abernathy, your host, as always. I want to welcome you to the podcast. Uh, on today's episode, we are going to talk about Article 518, which is assembly occupancies. Uh, and we're in the 2017 National Electrical Code. And hopefully you have your edition of it. We're rapidly approaching the 2020. I do want to give a shout out to a code change series that we're doing, which is a subscription series. Um, in fact, August 10th, our first episode went out, or I guess it's just an issue. It's volume one, issue one, where we start talking about Article 90 and we start dabbling into Article 100 and the different definitions. There's quite a few definitions, so this will be a couple parts, or there'll be a couple, couple issues, I guess I should say, that we'll be addressing Article 100 as we move slowly and methodically through the National Electrical Code for the changes to 2020 uh, and kind of give you some of my thoughts and insight into those changes to help you understand it a little bit easier. And so that series is available. Go over to our website and you can actually subscribe there for the series. Uh, you can do it per episode, uh, I guess per issue, uh, or you can subscribe to a 12-month subscription. Uh, and this series is going to be in three volumes and there's 12, a minimum of 12 issues each volume uh, before we then move on to the 2023 code. Uh, but we're right here in the 2020, and um, right now, Volume 1, Issue 1 is already launched, and you can get it on our website, or you can subscribe, and each month you'll have it sent to your door uh, via email and a PDF version for you to print out and do whatever you want with it. Okay, so that's what we got covering. I've got a, you can hear it, i got a copy in my hand. All right, so today we're going to talk Article 518. I've got a lot of people that sent me uh, different requests for podcasts and some videos, and I'm going to be working on some more videos. I haven't done some videos in a while, uh, but I wanted to get a podcast out. I've been traveling quite a bit, and so I selected Article 518, one, because it allows me to, uh, to pretty much just chat about it and, and get some things out there uh, about it that uh, might help you understand it a little bit better. But before we do anything, I think it's really important to understand that we're in Chapter 5, and we're talking about Article 518. Understanding how the code is laid out is really important. Understanding the information that's given us in Article 90 is really crucial to understand why there are some things that we're going to see in Chapters 5, Chapter 6, or even Chapter 7 that can modify or supplement something that you might see in Chapters 1 through 7. And so... It's real important that we understand the, the actual code arrangement. So usually I take a few seconds and let's talk a little bit about code arrangement. If you have your National Electrical Code, I'm 2017 edition, you're going to go to 90.3. And 90.3 is talking about code arrangement. And the code says, and this is exactly what it says in the code. It says, this code is divided into introduction in nine chapters, as shown in figure 90.3. And you got a nice, pretty figure in your code book. Okay? And it says... Chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 apply generally. So that applies to all electrical installations generally. Chapters 1 through 4 are going to apply. It says chapters 5, 6, and 7 apply to special occupancies, special equipment, 
and other special conditions and may supplement or modify the requirements in chapters 1 through 7. Now that's new for the 17th code because previously it said it would it may uh, it didn't even say may it would subject to, it would uh, supplement or modify chapters 1 through 4. So it kind of left 5, 6 and 7 out there dangling saying, well, you know what? Um, we can only modify 1 through 4, but what if we needed to modify something in 5? What if I was in chapter 6 but I need it modifies something in 5 or chapter 7 modifies something in 6 or it couldn't do it based on how the code was written. So 2017 change came along and said, you know what? In this code arrangement, chapters 1 through 4 apply generally to every electrical installation. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 can supplement or modify anything in chapter 1 through 7. Okay? And of course, we know chapter 8 is a standalone, but it does make when it does make reference to other chapters in 1 through 7, other different aspects of it, then it's very much applicable. Otherwise, chapter 8 stands by itself, but it is subject to... Uh, the National Electrical Code. Communication systems are governed under the NEC, uh, but there are applications, for example, 300.4, subject to physical damage, uh, when you're running the coaxial through board holes and things like that, that it that is something that you need to do, whether it's protective plates or whatnot. So you anytime that Chapter 8 makes a reference to another chapter or another section within one of those chapters, then it's very much applicable. Otherwise, it pretty much stands by itself, but it is enforceable. Of course, then you have chapter 9, which is tables, and when all the tables are, uh, uh, they're all applicable when they're referenced. And of course, we use chapter 9 tables a lot for things like raceway fill and what have you. Uh, and then, of course, and that'd be chapter 9's tables, uh, tables uh, 4 and 3 and 5 and whatnot for all that type of stuff. Uh, the next thing we get is informative annexes A through J. Uh, and they're informational only. Uh, they're not mandatory, but they've got a lot of good information in it. Uh, for example, informative annex C tells you how many conductors of a certain type of insulation type can go in a raceway uh, and not exceed the 40% fill. Now, keep in mind that that's if all conductors are the same insulation type or the same size. Then that's fine. The moment that you have different sizes in there, then that table's gone. That informative annex is no good to you. Also, remember that just because it says I can put 10 conductors in a raceway all the same size, say 12 gauge THHN, that doesn't mean that the, that the ampacity is going to be adequate because that table doesn't take into consideration, that annex doesn't take into consideration adjustment and corrections. That only takes into consideration the number of conductors I can actually physically put in the raceway and not exceed raceway fill. So don't get confused by that. Remember, you still got to, you might end up seeing you can put a certain number of conductors in there, but then after you do adjustment and corrections in accordance with 31015B2A and B3A, you've got a conductor that's going to give you no ampacity and it kind of defeats the purpose. So understand how these work. And of course, if you're doing calculations, informative annex D shows a lot of calculations that if you're in an exam, you might be able to glance at it real quickly and it jog your memory and it help you get through that exam. So informative annexes are great. But remember, they're informational only. They're just there to help you. Now, even when I say they're informational for Annex C and all conductors of the same size for raceway fill, you'll find that it will, if you were to do the calculation itself, then you'll find that it does mirror that of that Annex. So that's just a shortcut. But again, that only has to do with fill, not for what the conductor's ampacity will be after you actually follow informative Annex C. It is informational only. Just keep that in mind, okay? 
All right, so today we're going to talk about, again, we're going to be in Chapter 5. Obviously, we're talking about 518, which is um, assembly occupancies. Um, and I'll go over it a little bit and uh, talk about how it applies. Just remember that general wiring methods throughout the code are in Chapter 3, whether we're dealing with non-metallic sheets, cable, and 334, uh, whatever we're dealing with, 340 for, for the UF, whatever we're dealing with, uh, whatever different article for rigid uh, in uh, or RMC, IMC, uh, PVC, whatever it is, they're in Chapter 3. Now, in Chapter 5, most notably Article 518, we're dealing with assembly occupancies. And there's going to be wiring methods that are going to be what's preferred per the code or what's required per the code for these certain areas depending on maybe they're, whether they're behind a fire finish rating or they're uh, in the fixed wiring that's actually in the assembly uh, that's behind typically the, the rated walls because typically you're going to have a hundred or more persons in this location and the building codes are going to require a certain type of rating on these walls so then that means you're going to have a certain type of wiring method can be used in there uh, and so we're going to kind of go over all that. Just remember that you have your general rules in chapters 1 through 4, and 5, in this case, is going to supplement or modify some of the applications of what you would see under the general rule. Just kind of keeping that in mind. All right, first things first, before you go into any article, you need to read the scope. you got to know what you're dealing with. If you don't read the scope and you're in there so deep, and then you realize that you did all this reading and it doesn't even apply to what you're doing, then you've just kind of wasted all your time, right? So the scope of 518, which is dot one, and dot one is the scope within all articles, it says, except for the assembly occupancies explicitly covered in 520.1, and incidentally, if you didn't know what that was, 520 is theaters, audience areas of motion picture and television studios, performing areas, and similar locations. And in 520.1, it kind of gives you a designated places, indoors or outdoors, for dramatic, musical, motion picture projection, similar purpose, and whatnot. You have all these locations, and it says in 518, we're saying except for those, this article covers all buildings or portions of buildings or structures designed or intended for the gathering together of a hundred or more persons for such purposes of deliberation, worship, entertainment, eating, drinking, amusement, awaiting transportation, or similar purposes. Now, when we say similar purpose, similar activities to any of those we've just described. And that can be very broadly interpreted, uh, and I'm sure it does by jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But I think we, we kind of get the idea of what we're talking about here. Now, it goes on to 518.2 that gives us some examples of those assembly occupancies. Okay, But this is not an all-inclusive list. And I'm going to read you the list, but again, this is not all-inclusive. You have armories, assembly halls, auditoriums, bowling lanes, uh, club rooms. Um, I'm thinking more like club rooms. I'm thinking Masonic Lodge is a big example. Um, conference rooms, courtrooms, dance halls, um, dining and drinking facilities, uh, exhibition halls, uh, gymnasiums, mortuary chapels, uh, multi-purpose rooms, museums, uh, place of awaiting transportation, places of religious worship, pool rooms, restaurants, and skating rinks. Okay, so that's not an all-inclusive list, but that is a list. Okay, 
Now, it also goes on to say, well, what if I've got multiple occupancies within a building? Okay, so here's what the code addresses that in 518.2b. So we saw some examples of what were assembly occupancies, but now what if we have a building or structure in a portion of that and there's multiple occupancies within this building? Okay, well, it says in 518.2b, it says multiple occupancies. It says where an assembly occupancy forms a portion of a building containing other occupancies, Article 518 applies only to that portion of the building considered an assembly occupancy. It only, these rules here, are only going to apply to that portion of the building. Okay? Now it says occupancy of any room or space for assembly purposes by less than 100 persons in a building of other occupancy the and incidental to such other occupancy shall be classified as part of the other occupancy and subject and subject to the provisions applicable thereto. Okay, so when we're looking at this, we could have one occupancy that is a place of assembly, and then we have a secondary occupancy in that building that is not going to meet the provisions of being considered an assembly occupancy. Okay, it has less than a hundred people. It is any other activity is basically. Um, just, I don't know, incidental to that occupancy's existence. And it's not really going to kick it into that category of an assembly occupancy. If that's the case, all the rules for that specific other occupancy is going to apply. And you follow the rules for that, okay? Whatever they may be, okay? But when it comes to the portion of it that is qualifying as an assembly occupancy, that would be 100 persons or more, then you're going to kick into some extra rules here that we're going to have to follow in 518 that are very specific to that occupancy. Very specific to that occupancy. Now, in building it and designing it, the design professional is going to rate the walls. They're going to rate the separation between areas of the building that might be non-rated construction versus rated construction. Uh, typically, when you see these assembly type of buildings, there's an area where the, where the actual assembly takes place, and then the walls that encompass that are typically have a certain type of rating on them. Uh, and so if there's penetrations, you have to maintain that rating of the penetration and, and all those type of things. So we're talking about that space, okay, is what we're focusing on when we come into 518, and the walls that encompass that space, and Okay. So that's kind of what I want to put in your picture, that all of these rules here are for the portion of the occupancy or the building which has multiple occupancies, that portion of occupancy in that building that meets this provision of 100 persons or more has to meet these additional rules that we see in 518. Now among all that, we saw that it was very clear, it was very clear that this article covers assemblies but it's not applying to theaters because that's covered in Article 520, okay? All right, now, it's going to cover any, any single indoor space, uh, the building itself, or a part of that building that's designed and intended for 100 or more persons. We, we've kind of covered that. That's going to include things like dining rooms, meeting rooms, entertainment areas. Uh, other than that, with a stage or platform or projection booth, okay? We, we don't want to dabble into 520, Okay, because that's what that's covered at 520. But you know, lecture halls, gymnasiums, we've covered all those 
those type of things. E skating rinks, for example, all of that. Now, that's one area of it. So I'm trying to define down so that you get a better understanding what is covered and what's not. I get the question from time to time. People ask, well, what about the classrooms in a school? Well, if, if there's a classroom in a school and it's designed for less than 100 persons, then it's not subject to this article, okay? Then it's not. Uh, another example would be maybe like a supermarket with a rated occupancy load of over 100 persons is not subject to this article because there is no assembly purpose, all right? And no likelihood of self-reinforced panic during an emergency, okay? So it's not the same as what you would have in an auditorium where people are kind of crammed in one spot, okay? You can agree to disagree, but that's not what the intent was going after. It's pretty clear down here that it's not shooting for things like uh, uh, supermarkets, okay? That's not what its focus is. You know, while this doesn't really apply to supermarkets, I could have a department store or something like a, like a Sears or whatever that might incorporate some type of community area or gathering space for shows or demonstrations or, or whatnot. And if that's the case, and if it could have a, a, an occupancy of 100 or more, then that space or that area within that department store might have to conform to Article 518, okay? So kind of the, kind of the things that you always have to look at and think about, okay, when you're, when you're doing something like that, how it's going to, how it's going to apply. Uh, I do know that sometime in the past, and I don't know when, that there were public inputs put into the code, attempted to actually include supermarkets, and, and department stores in general, even though the pretty much people are transient in and out, um, in this list of places of assembly or assembly occupancies, uh, and it was uh, it, it, it was rejected, so it didn't make it. Okay, it's it's important to know that that places of assembly covered in this article must be a hundred or more people. Okay, now. Typically, the question is not by something that the electrician has to determine. This is something that belongs firmly in the hands of your building official, or the municipality. They're going to make that decision. You're just going to take that decision as the person designing it or running with it and design it accordingly. Uh, if I was designing something with a building that's like a department store or something similar, but I had a potential for a portion of that building that did have an occupancy that was 100 had the potential for 100 or more, um, then I've got to take 518 into consideration. And it's really kicking me into the different types of, of wiring methods, really, that I can use within this place of assembly or this assembly occupancy. That's what I'm really going for, okay? All right, so I think we're, I think we pretty much, we're on the same page. We know what we're talking about here. Uh, but again, Theatrical areas, things with booth or stage platforms, projection and all that. Man, flip over to Article 520. That's where you got to be. Okay? Um, so we don't want to get the two confused. Now, there's other articles that can come into play uh, that you need to be aware of in 518. That's 518.3. If these places, uh, this, uh, and I'm going to use that term a lot, sadly, places of assembly, but assembly occupancies where we have 100 or more, if that assembly occupancy has a hazardous classified area, 
And this is just going to remind you in 518.3 it is, you know what, A says, you know what, if this is a hazardous classified area that we're talking about here, which doesn't make sense, but if it was, then you got to meet the rules of Article 500, okay? So that's kind of just a reminder there that, you know what, you could have some applications where you have, you know, certain types of class or division ratings for a hazardous classified area that you have to take into consideration, Okay, and so this is just to remind you that, hey, just because you're in 518 and you think we're dealing with occupancy assemblies or assembly occupancies, I should say, that you might have other rules that are other articles that are going to apply here. Don't forget it. And of course, that being hazardous classified areas should be common sense, but it's just a good reminder, right, to make sure we're following that. Now, I like to, to go to the next thing and, and talk about B, which is temporary wiring. And I kind of like to do this in reverse order. Uh, and it's to say that, yes, you can use cable trays uh, as long as they're, you know, they have a sign on it that says cable tray for temporary wiring. And you're allowed to put cords and cables where there's conditions of supervision and maintenance ensures that only qualified persons will serve uh, service the installation. Flexible cords and cables identified in Table 400.4 for hard usage and extra hard usage shall be permitted in cable trays used only for temporary wiring. So this is making a reference here for temporary saying that if you have applications of cords, and many times you do, that they can be used in cable trays. But you're going to have to mark those cable trays and they have to be cable trays for temporary wiring only. That's all that goes in there. So that's the exception, okay? And that's an exception to the to the general rule which talks about the, the application of uh, the temporary wiring. So we're, we'll kind of kick right into that. Now, first and foremost, uh, Part B talks about exhibition halls. Okay, so in exhibition halls, and I've been to a lot of them, uh, it's where we go to conferences and we have our booths for uh, the electrical industry. NFPA's got one. Uh, actually, NECA has got one coming up very soon, next month. Uh, in Vegas. I'll see you in Vegas. I'll be there. Stop by the booth. I'll be at the Encore Wire booth. Come by and see me. Um, we'll talk code. i also doing some presentations while I'm there and I'm giving away some goodies. So come by the booth and sit, sit in on those presentations. But in those exhibition halls and we're used to display booths such as for trade shows, then temporary wiring shall be permitted to be installed in accordance with Article 590. Now Article 590 is the article that deals with temporary wiring. And so basically it allows us to run temporary applications all around this exhibition hall uh, in order to power to bring power to all these booths, okay? That's really what it does, okay? Now, it also reads in here, it says that um, it, you can, it, it, where it says flexible cords and cables uh, approved for hard and extra hard use shall be permitted to be laid on the floor we're protected from contact by the general public. So I can also use different types of flexible cords and cables because it's not permanent wiring, okay? It's not being done as permanent wiring. So it's allowing me to use this to facilitate the operation of this exhibit hall and, and to get to all these booths and everything around there, okay? Uh, it all goes on to say that the ground fault circuit interrupter requirements for 590.6 shall not apply. Okay, so what it's doing is it's basically waiving the GSCI protection rules for the temporary wiring that is necessarily uh, widespread at exhibition halls. Okay, so this temporary wiring runs everywhere. I mean, all the booths we ever get, all we've got is a is, you know kind of like a 
relocatable power taps stuck in our booth. Okay, and that's what we've got. All right. So it tells us, you know what? You don't have to meet the general requirements in 598.6, which is generally what you've got to have GFCI protection for construction, all this type of stuff, uh, remodeling and all that requires all this GFCI. So this is saying, you know what? For that application, don't worry about it. Don't, don't worry about it at all. However, in the very next line, it says, well, but all other ground fault circuit interrupter requirements of this code shall apply. When we say this code, we mean this code in general. So if I have any requirements, maybe uh, it's a trade show where they're doing home improvements and they're setting up a show and it's got a, 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 a sink or a wet bar or whatnot. And so the requirements of 210.8 that are going to require in, in B for the other than dwelling applications, uh, let's say it's going to require the application where within six foot of the sink, I have to have GFCI protection. So I'd have to meet that role. So that's different than the dis the power to the booth to like hook up some lights for a display. If you're actually fitting something out or display, a big display, and, it's, and you've got some other GFCI requirement that would rear its head, then you still got to meet its provision. We're not going to cut you a break from that. Okay? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, okay. So in the application, typically, what happens? All of this stuff that gets done at a trade show uh, that you're going to extend from the power that's bought to the booth, for example, that doesn't have GFCI protection requirements, as you see, it's not requiring here. But everything else you might plug it into does require you meet the GFCI requirement rules. And so the reason that we do this is because generally everything at this trade show uh, is going to be powered by the end of an extension cord. Let's, let's base it. Let's, let's, let's be real. It, everything's going to be plugging in. And you remember, you don't have GFCI to that power to your, to your booth or whatever it is. So now the other stuff that might require GFCI is going to be being powered from it. Okay? So, and this is typically going to be an extension cord. Okay? And when this happens, there's a real possibility of something being damaged, something being crushed, uh, a neutral's continuity being broken. And in that case... Uh, when that happens, the normal conventional type of GFCIs will fail in the on position. Now, we do have some changes since then that require them to fail in the off position, okay? But because of the application and the risk of that, this is why 590.6A2 requires GFCI to be identified for portable use. And so in our application, that is still required. If you want to do it, then you got to use a cord and plug connection for the brand circuit or the feeder, then the GFCI circuit interrupter protection shall be listed as portable ground fault circuit interrupter protection or provide a level of protection equivalent to a portable ground fault circuit interrupter whereby assembled in the field or at the factory, however you want to do it, okay? So basically the long and short is uh, that you have to have, you, you get a reprieve from GFCI protection for the kind of the booth. But if you're doing something at the show that would invoke some other GFCI requirement throughout this code, and that being the code, the entire code, then that is still enforced. You still have to meet it, okay? So you're only getting the break on the power supplying the booth, if you will, okay? Um, next, I guess we'll go into the wiring methods. Uh, so 
The next thing we're talking about is 518. Oh, I guess I should talk about emergency systems. Uh, typically, these buildings or structures uh, are going to have, depending on because of the number of people, uh, they're going to have some type of emergency system. So the 518.3C is emergency system just serves to remind you that other articles may come into play that the control of the emergency systems shall comply with Article 700. And that should be a no-brainer. That's just a reminder to you that if you have a building that does require an emergency system, uh, then it's going to follow all the rules, obviously, in Article 700. Uh, again, all those have to be met. Okay. Now, 518.4 wiring methods. It says general. You have three. There's A, B, and a C. Now, A is general. B is non-rated construction. And C is spaces with finished ratings. So we'll kind of talk a little bit about each one of them. So the basic rule is that fixed wiring must be metal raceway, flexible metal raceways, non-metallic raceways that are encased in not less than two inches of concrete, not doing that, um, type MI, MC, or AC cable. Uh, and it says the wiring method shall itself qualify as an equipment grounding conductor in accordance with 250.118. We know MC doesn't. But then it goes on to say, or, that or, the power of or, it's important, or, the power of or, it says, or shall contain an insulated equipment grounding conductor sized in accordance with table 250.122. Now, we know that MC cable, the armor itself, is not an equipment grounding conductor. However, if it has an insulated equipment grounding conductor inside of it, and it is sized in accordance with 250.122, which is based on the size of the overcurrent protected device ahead of the circuit, then it is something that can be qualified to use as a fixed wiring method uh, in the walls uh, of this place of assembly. Now, with that in mind, there is also uh, an exception. Now, the exception really just tries to say, well, you have fixed wiring methods shall be as provided in, and there's an A, B, C, and a D. So the importance of this exception is saying, well, I'm telling you what the general basic rules are, but then it goes on to say, yeah, but I'm getting an exception. If you're dealing with audio signaling, communication circuits, class two or class three, or fire alarm circuits, they have their own respective articles, and they have their own wiring uh uh, type of wiring methods within them that are acceptable in this location. Okay, so general rules, your basic rule, and then of course you have the exception for dealing with audible. Uh, what is it? Audio signaling processing application, amplification and reproduction equipment, which is Article 640. You have communication circuits, Article 800. You have Class 2, Class 3, remote control and signaling, Article 725. And you have fire alarm and Article 760. You have their own specific requirements uh, that can meet. So that's the exception to the rule for use of metal raceways, flexible metal raceways, non-metallic raceways encased in two inches of concrete, MI, MC, or AC cable. Okay? All right. Next you have B, which is non-rated construction. So you might have certain portions of the building that have non-rated construction, okay? Well, if I have non-rated construction, then I'm able to use the wiring methods, like uh, I can use any of them that we already previously discussed. Obviously, MC, MI, AC. I can encase a non-metallic raceway in two inches of concrete if you feel like it. Um, I can use metal raceway or a flexible metal conduit, but 
If it's considered the construction is non-rated construction, I can use all those wiring methods, but it'll also allow me to use non-metallic sheath cable. We refer to as NMB. Uh, I'm allowed to use type AC cable, uh, electrical non-metallic tubing, and rigid non-metallic tubing. Shall be permitted to be installed in these buildings or portions thereof that are not required to be fire-rated construction by the applicable building code. All right, there's plenty of applications where the walls are not required to be a specific rating, okay? And then in those walls that are, usually that encompass or wrap around the place or kind of seal off the place of assembly uh, where the 100 or more people can congregate, then that typical separation wall and all therein are typically going might be a rating application. But I might have applications outside of this area that are non-rated construction. And I might be able to just use non-metallic sheath cable in that. Maybe it's wood framing, whereas everything else within the, the assembly area is one type of construction, whereas the administrative area, let's say, of a, of a religious building is not, okay? It's a non-rated construction. And if that's the case, um, then I can use any of these other wiring methods. So those are generally the two different ones uh, that you're able to do in those applications. And lastly, the one we talk about, and it's probably the one that, that we see the most, uh, is spaces with finished ratings. All right, so I have a space with a finished rating that might have uh, the framed up wall, okay? And it might have uh, gypsum board, okay? And the gypsum board, typically uh, a half inch drywall type of gypsum board, uh, conventional drywall is usually has at least a 15 minute fire separation rating okay uh, you have the type X which has a lot greater and then some some designers will do uh, to in order to reach a certain type of separation uh, they will have like two layers of X then you have a hollow space and then two layers of X, whatever they've got okay but we're talking about an application where I've got a wall that is maybe the the framing of the building and I want to put a wiring method in there, but the space, the finish rating is going to be at least 15 minutes finish rating. Now, in this application, it is very specific, okay, and when it's dealing with spaces with finish ratings. And let me read it to you, because it is not an all-inclusive like what we saw back in, in uh, 518.2. It's very specific, and it says, electrical non-metallic tubing and rigid non-metallic tubing shall be permitted to be installed in club rooms, conference and meeting rooms in hotels or motels, courtrooms, dining facilities, restaurants, mortuary chapels, museums, libraries, and places of religious worship where the following apply. Okay? All right. So, very specific. Okay? Very specific. Now, there's two items here. Number one and a number two. Let's look at the first one. The first one says, okay, we're talking about putting the wiring in the walls, okay? The wiring method in the walls. It says, number one, the electrical non-metallic tubing, ENT, Smurf tube, if you will, the blue Smurf tube, uh, or rigid non-metallic conduit, PVC, uh, is installed concealed within walls, floors, and ceilings, where the walls, floors, and ceilings provide a thermal barrier of material that has at least a 15-minute finish rating as identified in listings of fire-rated assemblies. Okay, so those fire-rating assemblies 
Could be either from NFPA or from UL. Uh, different testing authorities have these different ratings and this thing we call the orange book, if you will, that gives these different ratings and everything like that. Uh, and so this is saying that I can use Smurf tube, ENT, or I can use rigid non-metallic conduit in these walls as long as it's behind a finish rating that's been identified and listed to have a finish rating of a 15 minutes finish rating. Uh, typical gypsum board uh, has a 15 minute rating. So I can put it in those walls. So I routinely see uh, ENT used a lot, electrical non-metallic tubing a lot in those applications because it's gonna be behind those 15 minute finish ratings, okay? Uh, the next one we have says, well, there's a number two. It says electrical non-metallic tubing or rigid non-metallic tubing is installed above suspended ceilings where the suspended ceiling or drop ceiling uh, provide a thermal barrier of material that has at least a 15 minute finish rating as again identified in the listings of fire rated assemblies. Um, there are drop ceilings or suspended ceilings that are in compliance with some type of recognized fire rating testing protocol and they will be stamped as such, marked as such. The assembly will be designed to accommodate that extra heavy weight, if you will. Uh, and if that's the case, those tiles tend to be graded for 15 minutes or greater. Now, normal ceiling tiles are not, okay? So it is very much a specific type of assembly that gets evaluated and it has a fire rating on it, okay? If that's the case and it's 15 minutes or greater, then I can use those non-metallic type products above there. Now, there is a caveat to that, a reminder. If this is your case and you're choosing this method, and one of these two apply, that electrical non-metallic tubing or rigid non-metallic conduit are not recognized for use in other spaces used for environmental air in accordance with 300.22C. So remember that now, if that space above that suspended ceiling is being used for environmental air under 300.22 for some type of air handling process, and you've identified it as such, then it would not allow such wiring methods within the plenum cavity ceiling. Now, again, we say it's an environmental airspace and it has in parentheses, uh, it says plenum because it's acting like a plenum and it describes what we see as a plenum in the mechanical codes, but it is really an environmental airspace and not technically a plenum, but it is done as a plenum. It is treated as a plenum. For all intents and purposes, if it's pulling air from that environment above that suspended ceiling into the air handler and then ducted it out into the rooms, then it's pulling air from that space. That is an environmental airspace and it is very much acting like a plenum. And I cannot use products in there that are not plenum rated uh, or that are listed in 300.22C to actually be installed in that location. Don't forget that little thing. So I know you, we can get excited and think, ah, I'm going to run that ENT, man. Ooh, I'm going to run that PVC. Or when I say non-metallic, it even could mean RTRC as well could go there under these rules. Now, just remember that above that, in the wall, it's probably not, it's not going to matter. That's not an environmental airspace. But above that suspended ceiling, you could get caught in a hiccup where you think, oh, I'm good to go. And then you get gigged by some inspector who says, nope, I'm sorry, you see that air handler unit? It's sucking air from that space. And since it's sucking air from that space and those grills in the room are open, it's literally pulling air from the, 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 the location up into that open space above that ceiling, 
Yeah, you can't do that. Now, I can tell you that usually when you have a fire-rated ceiling like that, they're not going to be sucking air from the space below. It's going to be a fully ducted-in space above a suspended ceiling. And But I'll let you figure that one out on your own. But at the end of the day, just be careful. That's all I'm saying. Just be careful on how you apply it. Now, for some more anecdotal information, there is an informational note under here that talks about uh, combustible wood supports and finish ratings and wood and, and uh, wood studs and wood joists and temperatures and whatnot. Again, I'm going to say you as an electrician, it's so much easier just to ask the building official, look at the plans, try to determine whether or not the space is rated or not, whatever. If it's an unrated space, then have at it. You have the allowances. If all else fails, use NC if you don't want to put it in pipe or, or conduit or raceway, metal raceway, then run MC cable or AC cable and you're good to go. But just something to think about, okay? All right. And probably all I'm going to talk about in uh, 518 that I think is of any real significance uh, for this episode. We're about 40 minutes into it. So um, that's the most significant part of it. Uh, the only one also that I'll just add is at 518.5 dealing with supplies. If you have portable switchboards or portable power production equipment, uh, this is typically what you might have in an assembly where you have these portable switch gear or portable power production in order to facilitate some kind of performance or some kind of activity. And they will usually connect into what's called power outlets that come from the main building that's supplying power to these portable switchboards or portable power production for whatever event's going on. Uh, you have to have overcurrent protection for these power outlets. It's just a no-brainer. you got to have that anyway. Uh, but sometimes you have what's called dimming systems. And when you're running the feeders and certain types of, of um, uh, conductors for these uh, dimming systems, you have two different types of dimming systems typically used. Uh, if you're running into a three-phase, four-wire dimming system that's called a solid-state sine wave, then you don't have to consider the neutral as a current carrying because you'll usually have the four conductors. You don't have to consider the neutral. Uh, you'll have your phases plus your neutral plus your equipment ground. Uh, you don't have to, but if you're doing a, a solid-state phase-controlled three-phase four-wire dimming system, then you're going to have to remember that because of it being a solid-state control, phase-controlled, that the neutral will carry current and has to be considered a current current conductor when you're applying adjustment and corrections in 31015B3A. Okay, uh, if you want to know what those are, what's the difference between the solid state phase control versus the solid state sine wave three phase four wire lighting dimming system, then go over to Article 520. The definition is there, and it's a pretty good definition. Okay, um, and so the quickest thing that I can tell people why we got to worry about the neutral is because in a solid state phase control dimmer. The wave shape is nonlinear, and when it's nonlinear, that's the issue with nonlinear loads causing harmonics and distortion on the waveform, and, and it causes a problem on the neutrals, so that's why you have to take that into account. Whereas a sine wave dimmer uh, is considered linear, and it applies the voltage in a wave shape, and it does have the cancellation, and the neutral does not get overbound, if you will, and so that's why you don't have to carry count the neutral as a current current conductor. Again, that's more than I wanted to go in for that. But that again is supplying systems, portable switchboards, portable power production for the facility of the assembly, whatever might be going on, whether it's a performance or whether or not it's a gathering or, or a dance hall, whatever it might be. Okay. All right. So that's all I want to talk about in 518. I remember that all the other applications of the code apply. All the other wiring methods apply except where they're modified here. 
Um, and all the other rules of the code, chapters 1 through 4, are still going to apply. There's nothing in 518 that's going to make you all of a sudden drop all the rules that are in general um, to that. Uh, the other neat thing is you actually saw where the rules in 590 get modified by 518, both of which are in Chapter 5, but that just goes to show you that 90.3's clarification in 2017 code lets us know that Chapters 1 through 7 can modify each other, and that's exactly what it did. It modified 590.6a with the GFCI provision, but yet it didn't modify the general requirements in 210.8. Okay, so interesting how the code works like that. So anyway... If you want to get more on our code changes and things for the 2020, go to our website and subscribe to our subscription. We have a newsletter every month. Uh, If you want to learn more about the National Electrical Code and really broaden your knowledge, we have a fast track series. It's available from our website. It's a real affordable price, and you you get access to it for a whole year. You can take it at your own pace. There's a lot of exams. If you just want to take an exam questions, we have an extensive collection of 800 exam questions there's a program that you can sign up with us, $269 or whatnot in some odd sense, that you can get access to 800 code questions. And you and they're on, you can take them over and over and over again. And it's just a varying levels of difficulty to help you better understand the National Electrical Code. We have so much available if you're trying to pass your exam. Just go over to masterthenec.com. You're more than happy to click around. If you got any questions, feel free to email me at info, that's I-N-F-O, at masterthenec.com. I'm more than happy to answer your questions. Um, Feel free to email me or you can go to our website and click on the contact us button. You can send it to me that way if you'd rather do that and not send me your email. That's fine. Um, But I'm still going to get your email because i got to reply to you, right? So um, hopefully you learned something from this one. Till next time, folks, stay safe and God bless. Every day the future's getting closer. Just looking bright Every day is another beginning